<laughs> You're up. Yeah. Well, that didn't bounce. When I'm not in the kitchen, there's one other activity which I truly love, and that's cricket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hardly. From dreaming of playing at the very top, I've had to settle for a more modest cricketing career. But when I'm out in the middle, there's nothing quite like it. But when those two worlds collide, food and cricket, well, that's my time to shine. So this episode is dedicated to the ultimate cricket tea. From scotch eggs to open sandwiches, the finest cakes and a great cuppa. I'm going to tell you how to make the ultimate spread, which means even if you lose, you'll feel like a winner. <sighs> Sorry, lads. I'm Tommy Banks, and you're listening to Seasoned, my podcast all about life at my farm and my restaurant, The Black Swan. I'm telling you all the stories of my ingredients and the journey from field to fork. This is Seasoned, episode 12, The Cricket Tea. Before we begin, I just want to say a huge thank you to all those listeners who have joined my well-seasoned club. We only launched a week ago, so it's great to see that so many people have jumped right in there. And if you haven't, well, what are you waiting for? Well Seasoned is the only place to get additional content with recipes from every episode, some additional content, a monthly newsletter, and entry to our fantastic giveaways, all for just £5 a month. All the details are online, www.tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned, or in the show notes. I'll tell you more about the giveaways later, but next week we'll be drawing our first ever winner who walks away with a Kasai grill and a whole bunch of tools and accessories worth over a thousand pounds. So get in there quick. Now, onto the show. Being a chef can mean some pretty unsociable hours, long days, hard work, and of course, a little time to switch off. Running three restaurants, well, that's just triple the amount of things to worry about. So having a hobby can be really important, and for me, it's cricket. A chance to spend a few hours with some mates and forget all about work. I absolutely love the game and every Wednesday I pad up for our local team, we're called Newber Priory and we play in the most beautiful place on the lawns of a stately home just outside Coxwold, a few miles from Oldstead. And every week I step onto the field as Tommy, the bang average cricketer. I might not have the same precise control over my batting average that I do over my food, but I do alright. We're actually top of the league. Well, at least at the time of recording we are. And when my producers came to capture a bit of the action, I think I became the first cricketer in the history of our little league to be mic'd up when going into bat. Oh. <laughs> You're up. Yeah. Well, that didn't bounce. Unfortunately, most of it was not suitable for broadcast. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> 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 
Anyway, cricket is the perfect sport for me because it's out in the sunshine, it brings people together, and it's the only sport where food is a deliberate and important part of the game. We are the number one crisp-eating team in the league. Oh, yeah? Uh, we have one of everything twice. You need a hearty breakfast before you start playing, and then there's a break for lunch and another break for afternoon tea. In fact, this weekend, as the country is gripped in ashes fever, up and down the country there'll be cricket teas being served in village halls and cricket pavilions. A spread of sandwiches, pastries and cakes. So I thought it's about time we gave the cricket tea a bit of love and gave you a few ideas on how to take it to the next level. And I'm beginning with a scotch egg. <laughs> to get the scotch egg right, well, you begin with good eggs, obviously. And the best eggs are fresh eggs. And I've come down to the farm with my dad to try and find some of the hens who have a little story all of their own. There's a hen in with these cows. Yeah. The hens are on walkabout. There's these beech trees over here. They roost up there on the night. And um, they're laying anywhere. So we're having to go all around and try and find eggs. Just like we used to when you were a lad. Yeah. Just find eggs, wait for them to cluck and see where they are. But so that's proper free range. Yeah. Regular laying hens in a commercial farm have a relatively short laying life, about 18 months. And after that, well, they're not producing quite as many eggs as they once did, and it doesn't make sense for a commercial farmer. So they just got rid of. It's all about the economics of keeping a hen versus the price of the eggs. But on our farm, we decided to give these retired hens a new lease of life, and they seem to be loving it. So molting is when a hen stops laying, but also they, they molt and they lose off like the feathers. Lose the feathers. They don't look that healthy, do they? Yeah. So these ones that have come from this intensive yeah, farm. Yeah, quite a few feathers lost. They don't look so healthy, but once they've been, you know, in a nice environment for a while, they start to look and behave like a normal hen again. But we've had hens that were, you know, what you might call wild hens, ones that have taken to living in the trees on their own, and they're, they're 10 years old, no problem at all. Yeah. They just, I think they just don't lay every day, do they? No, no. Which is absolutely fine for our model of farming. So basically what a bird does is it lays a batch of eggs and once it's got enough, it sits on them and hatches them out. And so we kid them on a bit and keep taking the egg away. So it thinks, oh, I haven't quite got enough now. I'll just lay another one. And it keeps on doing this day after day, month after month. Till the end they say, look, I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm actually gonna try and finish this nest of eggs. It gives up, just molts, goes broody, so you call it, it's, called, it's called a clucker, and then it goes clucking, tries to sit on the eggs, it just goes finds any eggs it can and sits on them. And then after a short while it gives over and says, these eggs have hatched, whether they have or not, mm. goes back into laying some more. That's how it works. So how many eggs are we getting at the moment? Well, about two dozen. Yeah. But they, they, and it varies. Actually, this really hot weather, they've gone off a little bit. Yeah. And it does depend whether we can find them. Now, in the back of the old circumstances, it's a question of you find a nest of eggs when you find them. Last week, I was poaching them down at the Abbey. Uh, we were serving them with uh, some local asparagus just on the specials board, and they were beautiful. Oh, yeah, but those were, we're bringing you the ones that we collected that morning. Yeah. So we've got just enough to put on the specials board then, really? I think that's all we've got, yeah. Yeah, because I do need four for myself every day. <laughs> Over the winter, unfortunately, there was a spate of bird flu and all the hens were literally cooped up in their houses. So now that they can be outside, they're exploring and, if I'm honest, causing some trouble. My kohlrabi have been nibbled and they're trying to have a go at the cucumbers as well. 
have they been eating this kohlrabi? Is that the hens that's pruned that? You need to get a con you need to get these hens under control. Well, the whole free range thing's lovely until they're just eating everything. Well, these kohlrabi are good to see now because there's no not anything like as much leaf on them. I know, but the leaves are quite good. We were we were cooking them before. Well, I think those hens have realised that as well, haven't they? Yeah. There's plenty of hens in here. It's a bit like Easter, this, searching for eggs. If you've got a farm shop nearby, or even just someone selling eggs at the end of the driveway, give them a go. Fresh eggs are incredible, but I actually think it's less about the taste and more about the consistency of them. I think good tips uh, for freshness of eggs. And well, the, thing, the thing is, when you're on a farm like this, even if they are a couple of days old, they're still much fresher than what you're getting from the supermarket. Um, but when you crack an egg open, if you crack an egg onto a saucer, you can tell how fresh it is straight away. So an old egg, the white will just will just spread out almost almost quite watery, and the yolk will sit down low. Whereas a fresh egg, when you crack open like a that day's egg, there isn't really any watery white to it at all. It's just one thick, firm pillow of white with a yolk sat on top of it. So it's really firm. And every day as it gets older, you get more wateriness and less mm -hmm. of the actual sort of thick egg white. Yeah. Um, so you can tell just by how sort of Hurt, they sit on the plate really. Fresh eggs would be a more creamy scrambled egg or they poach in beautifully. They'd be really tight and neat in a nice little ball. Um, I think the flavor of an egg is more down to the diet. And you can really see that this year when we've had this avian uh, flu where you have to lock up your, your hens when they're not being able to be free range and forage as they want to. You can see straight away the yolks going much paler um, and the flavor is just Blander. I mean, you are what you eat, and ultimately, you want your hens eating a bit of everything. So, we've got a handful of eggs. Now, to turn to these scotch eggs. I have to have a runny yolk. Those scotch eggs, you bite into the yolk, and it's all hard and crumbly and a little bit like dark and black around the outside. They should be illegal. You want a soft yolk which just drips down a little bit not so runny that it makes a mess of the tablecloth. We're talking fine margins, and for that, well, I've got a little secret to share. So I did say I'd make the perfect Scotch egg. I mean, to be honest, it's not something I really ever make. Uh, it's not something we have on our menus. Um, but I have a bit of a formula. So I guess to make the perfect Scotch egg, you need a perfect runny yolk, and I'm just peeling my eggs now. So my formula is, and you have to listen very carefully, it's I weigh the eggs and I get them all the sort of same size because, well, that's a good start. And then I give them one minute, five seconds in boiling water for every 10 grams of egg. So a 60 gram egg, which is like quite a standard size, would get six and a half minutes in boiling water. And then I lift them out into some iced water and I've just peel that and it feels pretty, feels pretty perfect. I promise if you follow my formula, you'll get the perfect egg every time. One minute and five seconds for every 10 grams of egg. Go write it down and you'll never overboil an egg again. Stating the obvious, just make sure your water is already at boiling when you add the eggs in so it comes straight back to the boil and then have your ice water ready so when, when your timer goes off, you lift them straight into the ice water. And don't try and peel them before they're totally cold because they might break as well. I mean, if you've undercooked it, you'll struggle to peel it. Um, you'll struggle to get the, the shell off in the first place. Uh, but if it's cooked right, you should just be able to feel it. It should just bounce back. It should have a little bit of give, but you can feel there's a runny yolk in the middle. 
I'm pretty happy with that. I think it could be good. So, you've boiled your eggs, you've cooled them down, now it's time to scotch them. Actually, while we were making these, we were talking about how there's nothing else really like it in world cuisine. Nobody else wraps their eggs in meat and then fries it. So I went online, and yeah, it's pretty unique, but not Scottish. Depending on who you believe, the Scottish egg possibly originated in Whitby, Yorkshire, representing, where they used fish paste to wrap around the egg rather than sausage meat. I mean, what is fish paste? I could imagine like a nice bit of smoked haddock or something around the outside would be quite tasty. But fish paste? I think I'll stick to sausage meat. I also read that in Manchester they use a pickled egg instead of a regular one, which is different. Mine, though, is definitely more traditional. The perfect egg wrapped in sausage meat and breadcrumbs. And my sausage meat today is literally some of our breakfast sausages from our pigs. If you've got a burger press or something like that, that's a really good thing to use. You get a nice even patty, but I haven't with me and you probably don't either. So what you want to do is just smooth it out until you get a really nice even circle of sausage meat. And then you need to start wrapping it around the eggs. You put the egg in the middle and just sort of start massaging it around. It's a bit of a messy job. But you're looking to get it as even as possible. So you just need to use your thumb just to, to move it over and bring it together. And once all the sausage is wrapped around the egg, you're starting to think you've got a nice coating. Then I've already got my uh, breadcrumb, my panne, what's called a panne kit, which is uh, flour, egg and breadcrumb ready. Just put a little bit of flour on my hands and then I can start to work that sausage meat. But I'm just going to roll it in my hands just to make sure it's totally even. So roll it around the flour, get a nice even coat, and then dust it off with your hands so you get rid of any excess. And then that flour will help your egg mix stick. So I've just used whole egg. Uh, you could use you could use milk or just egg whites. Uh, you know, if you've got some egg whites left over from something, it's a good thing to use them up on. And then into your breadcrumbs, you can use any breadcrumbs. I've actually got um, the panko breadcrumbs, which you can buy from the supermarket. I'd always advise having some of them in the cupboard because you use them for all sorts, not just for breadcrumbing things, but great to sprinkle on top of a, um, a shepherd's pie or a fish pie or something just to give you a bit of extra crunch. Once your breadcrumbs are on, you're ready to deep fry. I'm using some rendered pork fat from our pigs, but of course you can use anything you like. Most people would use vegetable oil. Just make sure your oil is hot enough first and then gently lower the eggs into the fryer. I've got a fryer here, but of course you can have a pan of oil as well. 180 degrees. And um, you can give that four minutes, which does sound like a long time, but uh, it needs all of it. I'm having to keep turning mine to make sure there's no part of the scotch egg which is poking out above the fat. Mine were in the fryer for a full four minutes. Now, the moment of truth. What are they like inside? Totally crispy on the outside. Let's cut through it. Oh, you what, mate? Look at that. That is perfect. So you've got a perfect runny yolk, the white's all set, even layer of sausage around it, and a tiny thin layer of breadcrumbs. That is tray bon. Oh, mmm. And there you have it, a delicious, soft-centered scotch egg. 
I promise it's really simple to do and you'll get a nice reaction from your guests when you cut open and the yolk just oozes out. These ones I made got demolished by the rest of the kitchen team in about three minutes and I ate two of them. That's the first part of our cricket tea complete. And I know if I come in from an afternoon fielding to see those on the spread, then I'm going to jump straight in. Serve it up with a nice basic pickle or some chutney, and the whole team will be happy. But for my ultimate cricket tea, we need more than just a scotch egg. Next on the menu is a sandwich, and I thought I'd ask my team what their ultimate sandwich might be. Oh, what is my ultimate sandwich? Oh, ultimate sandwich. Difficult one. Ooh, I'm gonna say like pastrami, like a Reuben basically. So like pastrami and like mustard and sauerkraut. I've, I like a bit of gravy. I'm a bit bit different. I like a bit of a gravy. So like maybe beef, gravy, some onions. Actually, it's not that difficult. It's pretty easy because I've had two of these in the past week. Pastrami, gherkin, and some nice cheese with a, like mayonnaise and mustard sort of blend, but on a really nice bread. This is a, I really like an egg mayo. <laughs> I love an egg mayo. Cold from M&S. A supermarket egg mayo? Incorrect. Well, each their own, I guess. For me, an absolute no-no is cheese and onion. No cricketer wants that. You don't want to be out in the field and have raw onion repeating on you all afternoon. Soggy bread is another thing that has to be avoided. Personally, I'm looking for something like a smoked salmon, some nice bread, something with a bit of love. But I want Dickie to tackle this one. One ultimate sandwich, please, Dickie. So I've been set the ultimate challenge to come up with a mega sandwich for the ultimate cricket tea. So I was thinking, like, what do I really, really enjoy? Um, and how could that manifest itself into the ultimate sandwich? So for me, like, celebrating a lot of what we do at the farm, so, like, the grass-fed Dexter beef. Um, this is the brisket from one of our uh, grass-fed dry-aged Dexter beef cattle. So this is going to be like absolutely banging in the sandwich. So to complement that, we've fermented some uh, Savoy cabbage hearts that we grew on the farm last year. So that's like sort of sauerkraut-esque. So we're going to layer it up. Sauerkraut, we've got some beautiful slices of salt beef. And then we've also made uh, a mayonnaise using lemon verbena which has been infused into an oil and also a bit of uh, roast garlic oil. Emulsified that into a lovely thick mayonnaise, that's on the base uh, and then the salt beef and the sauerkraut's on there as well. This is actually quite restrained for you Dickie. I was half expecting some four-year-old fermented leaves to make an appearance. And then just to give a little nod to the foraged as well, we've uh, finished it with some pickled wild garlic capers. Uh, and then just to be really pretentious, some Baron Bygod's soft cheese over the top. Oh, there you go. But it does look delicious. These capers have been in pickle now for almost four years. So back in 2019, uh, heavily salted overnight, then rinsed off and then pickled in a sweet pickle. So white wine, vinegar, sugar and a bit of water. Um, and that like really, we always say we want to wait a year, ideally, before we use them. But after four years, they're just unbelievable. They're sweet, sort of sticky, just really nice garlicky morsels. So we've got some beautiful Haxby Bakehouse rye bread here. So we're just going to get loads of, loads of mayonnaise on the bottom, uh, spread that all about. 
get some lovely salt beef on there as well. So we basically warm that up a little bit, uh, just to give a bit of point of difference. Uh, get the sauerkraut on there, pile that up nice and high, uh, and then plenty of wild garlic capers, because who doesn't like wild garlic? So, And then a nice thick uh, slice of bread on top. And it tastes, well, you can imagine how it tastes. Rich, sharp, full of flavour. The only challenge with this will be making enough for a whole team to enjoy. I think I'm pretty happy with it, yeah. I'm, uh, I know Tommy's a fan of this sandwich, so I think he'll be uh, suitably impressed, especially with a little Ulster twist on there as well. Later on, we'll be completing our cricket tea with a delicious Battenberg cake, and I'll take you down to Lord's Cricket Ground, where discerning guests can try my fine dining experience with a view of the pitch to boot. But first, Dickie wanted to show me inside the preservation station, where's a new arrival, the first meat from our Mangalitsa pigs. If you listened to episode two, you'll remember Danny Jones from McFly came to lend a hand shifting these Mangalitsas to a new outdoor home. And it took some shifting. Oh no! <laughs> oh no, you can't go that way, pal! Where have you gone? I have to be the wrong way. This is maybe why not many people keep mangalitsa pigs, because they are fairly big and strong, aren't they? What? God, it's strong, yeah. Well now, the first of these mangalitsas have gone to the butcher, and the first cuts are back for us to put on the menu. I've never cooked with mangalitsa before, and I've never tasted it, so I can't wait to see the cuts and get my hands on one. First impressions of the mangalitsas is, I mean, they have delivered fat like I couldn't imagine. I knew they were going to be fatty and that's the point of them, but we're going to have so much lardo. I couldn't believe the bellies are pretty much lardo as well. I don't understand how there's not, there's no meat really at all. No, it's kind of the purpose of the pig to be really fat, but I think it's just more shocking than anything that it's so fat. Look at it. There's literally nothing. Good job I didn't say they were going to be for Sunday lunches. There's no meat on it at all. It's just fat, isn't it? You think there'd be like a seam going through the middle, but... Imagine that being your stomach. The amount of fat is verging on obscene, and that's why we took these pigs in the first place. But I'm interested to see what the chops and steaks are like, and they're already down at the Abbey Inn, so I need to go up and cook one. So I'm going to cook this mangalitsa. It's actually a T-bone chop, so it's got a little bit of the uh, fillet on it as well. I've just never seen anything like this before. It's like so heavily marbled through the eye of the meat, which you don't normally see with pork. You often see with beef, but normally a fat pig will have a lean eye of muscle and then a lot of fat over the top of it, whereas this has got fat all the way through it. So I'm just gonna stick this on the barbecue and see what it comes out like. I, I mean, I've never even eaten mangalit support like this before in my life, so. I'm really interested to see what it cooks like. It's quite dark as the meat. It's certainly very much darker than the, the Berkshire pork chops we were getting. Now when you're cooking like a pork chop like this, you kind of want it a nice medium-ish, maybe a little bit more than medium. You don't want to cook it all the way through so it'll go dry. A lot of people are used to traditionally having pork in that way. Smells incredible. Like there's so much fat that just touching it, just touching the steak itself has covered my hand in fat. Never really seen an animal quite like this before. I don't know, Liam, when you're cooking these, you're gonna have to uh, 
work very hard on rendering the fat, I think. Last week in the barbecue episode, I was explaining how you should keep meat moving when it's on the barbecue, lifting it on and off the heat. And these mangalitsa chops are definitely going to need that treatment. The amount of fat that's rendering out of them is going to cause a lot of flame, so I need to keep it moving so we don't singe the meat. Oh yeah, this is we're going to do a whole mangalitsa part of the menu. So we've got this weekend we've got the T-bones, we've got uh, the pork chops, we've got some rump steaks, we've also got some Cumberland sausages that we've made as well. So yeah, a whole mangalitsa part of the menu. A few more minutes and I think we're just about there. I've invited Abby in head chef Charlie to taste it with me. He'll be the one cooking them after all when they inevitably fly off the shelves next week. Yeah, I think we should serve it whole on the bone. Yeah, I agree, it looks mega. Do you want to do the honours? The colour of it is quite interesting, isn't it? It's just a bit darker than normal pork. Um, I think the, uh, the cooking degree is right. The fat's unbelievable. Mm. Yeah, and it actually renders down to really very little. Mm. Mm. I understand it now. It's um, here's the wagyu of the port world. Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> that fat. You actually just want to eat lumps of the fat. Yeah. It really is worlds apart from any other pork I've ever eaten. It's just like juicy, like you know, if you ever if you've ever had wagyu, like it is juicy in your mouth as you bite it. It's just like full of the fat fills your mouth, of fat. and that is what you get here. Like that bit there. That's one of the tastiest pieces of meat. It's rare that I'm speechless, but eating this mangalitsa is better than I could have hoped for. I'm so happy with it. It is just pork with flavour that you just cannot imagine. It's like the tastiest pork I've ever eaten. So pleased. If you are booked in at the Abbey Inn over the next few weeks, you'll likely be able to order one of these. They'll be on the specials board until they're gone, and they're really worth trying out. And this is what the Abbey Inn is all about. Big, chunky pork chop like this. We wouldn't serve at the roots of the black swan, but we are going to use other parts of the animal. We'll be using the beautiful mangalitsa fat, or the jowls, or another part of the animal on the menus there. But having the Abbey Inn means we can cook with a whole animal. We're going to make lots of sausages, and we plan on our own charcuterie with a brand new piece of kit we put at the back of the restaurant at the Abbey. What I do know is that we might want to go and we're buying and breeding a few more of these mangalitsas down at the farm. Before we carry on, just a super quick reminder, you've got just a few days left before we draw our first winner. Members of my well-seasoned club are in with a chance of winning an incredible Kasai grill with a whole package of tools and utensils. We'll be drawing the winner in next week's episode. But that's not all. We've got an amazing giveaway every month, as well as bonus content and a monthly newsletter. And already loads of you have signed up to be a part of it. If you feel like you're missing out and want to join the club, just visit tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned. Now, on with the show. And earlier I set about making the perfect cricket tea. And that's because, well, I love cricket. 
This week, when England play Australia in the Ashes Test at Lords, I'll be cooking up an extraordinary five-day menu at my restaurant inside Lords Cricket Ground. The Edrich and the Willow are the two separate dining rooms that I run with amazing views of the pitch where guests can sample food all day long including our super premium cricket tea where we cook beautiful shoe buns to order make gorgeous sandwiches pies eclairs little chocolate pavés plus there's plenty to drink of course too and it's one of the highlights of my year and just occasionally a little bit more than occasionally i get to sneak a glimpse of some of the action out in the middle Dining rooms like this, they need to be all about quality. It's informal because I want it to be a fun place to be. Guests are there to enjoy themselves and watch a great day of sport, but the food has to be exceptional as well, but not take itself too seriously. One of the dishes we do on the afternoon tea is a mini Battenberg cake, and I'm gonna tell you all about how to make it at home in just a bit. But there's another connection to Lords 2 in September, I'm heading back there to host my first ever food festival, the home of food. Tickets are on sale now, and we're giving some away to well-seasoned members. And don't forget, if you want to be in with a chance of winning some home of food festival tickets for September, then get on board with our well-seasoned club. Just visit tommybanks.co.uk forward slash season to sign up and get all the exclusive member-only benefits. Right then, I've given you guys lots of tips for the perfect cricket tea, the soft yolk scotch egg and a banging take on a Reuben sandwich courtesy of Dickey. But you can't have a cricket tea without some cake. And down in our pastry section, I've been knocking up one of my favourites, a Battenberg. So Battenberg's like my all-time favourite cake, and I'm just a massive fan of marzipan. Um, and I mean, everyone knows what they are. You see them like the little mini Battenberg cakes, and they're actually really easy to make. Well, they are really easy to make, but you need to be quite precise. You just need a ruler, basically, and a bit of patience. So I cheat a little bit. I do use the roller, like uh, a laminator, like we um, used if Clara Amfro making the cruffins in season one. So I put my marzipan on here, so my block of marzipan. And then I can just roll it, roll it through either side and get the thickness to how I want it. And if I turn it, just get it as square as possible because you want to work with squares of a Battenberg. And I mean, oh my God, rolling marzipan is so much easier than rolling pastry. That is, that is, one more. Go slightly thinner, slightly thinner. Well, I think anybody at home isn't going to have a gigantic pastry laminating machine. So you're going to have to do this with a rolling pin. So what you're looking to do is to get your marzipan like a really nice square and very even. Uh, use a ruler um, to get it like perfectly square and I'm going to say like about two mil thick because um, you don't want too much marzipan. And then again, it's the same. You need your sponge. And that also needs to be nice and thin. So cut it in, cook it in a, uh, a thin rectangular tray. And then you need to use your ruler again to cook perfect squares. If you use a ruler, it can look really uniform and great. And if you don't use a ruler, it can just look like a bad cake. I think you kind of got to make it the size of your cake tin. 
So if you've got a, a deeper piece of sponge, you can make a much bigger cake. But I like them nice and small, so you can just pop them in and I wanna. So what I have is four identical pieces of sponges. So they're all uh, two centimeters by two centimeters square. So I know it's gonna look really sharp. Uh, I've just used a little pastry knife just to, just to make sure they're absolutely square. And then I'm just gonna use a palette knife to layer a thin amount of jam on all sides of the, uh, the sponge. So that'll act as a glue, but also it, it looks great, tastes great. And don't be shy with that because you actually want to see the layer of jam when you cut the cross section of the cake. And then I just fold over the marzipan and again the other side. And then you're going to have to have a slight overlap to make it sit. But equally, you don't want a massive overlap because you're going to end up with too much. So I just fold it over, use a little bit of the jam to make it stick and then take my knife and I just run it down here and just peel away that extra bit. And then what I will do now is turn it over and then sit it on the um, on the actual join and then it's just gonna help it. And that is as simple as that. Put that in the fridge for an hour just to set up. And that is the ultimate cake for a cricket tea, done. The trick with this is precision. Get a ruler out, square off your sponge and give yourself enough time to get it right. The sponge can be any color you like too and any flavor there's loads of scope to be creative. I think the, the beauty of the Battenberg cake is the, um, is the presentation. It, that looks like a shop-bought Battenberg cake, but you can do anything with the flavors. So with the sponge, you could put elderflower in it. You could put, um, I like to use hazelnuts, things like that. You can use any flavor of jam. And then also with the, the marzipan, you can always add flavors as well. I quite like to add uh, beetroot juice to it, not particularly because it has loads of flavor but it makes it bright pink so it looks cool and there you have it just get a sharp knife cut a slice and you'll see that simple design running through the cake and hey if you've made it send me in a picture of your own efforts i'd love to see them seasoned at tommybanks.co.uk that completes my take on the perfect cricket tea but you'll have your own ideas i'm sure I've seen some brilliant spreads of Asian inspired dishes, some fantastic homemade pastries. You've absolutely got to have a proper pork pie in there. I can't believe I forgot to add that. Anything else I've missed? Send us your thoughts or your pictures of what you've been served up here and there. Maybe I'll shout out a couple of brilliant cricket teas next week or even name and shame. But there's one element in a cricket tea which has to be served and there's no debating how you make it. A proper cup of tea completes the lineup. And I know the England players this week at Lords will be having a brew with their afternoon tea too. It has to be Yorkshire tea, of course, with a splash of milk, no sugar, job done. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take two minutes to give us a rating and a review. It means that other people will find it much easier to find the show and join us on our journey. Seasoned is a What's the Story podcast. It's presented by me, Tommy Banks, and my producers are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. <laughs>